Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. My name is Dr. Emma Figgers and I'll be your host tonight. So if you are a paramedic, a doctor, nurse, physio, or indeed anyone who is curious um, and has an adventurous mind and spirit, this is the podcast for you. During tonight's episode, we're going to be hearing more about exploring conservation and cooking. And wow, honestly, guys, you are in for a treat with tonight's guest. So let me introduce you um, to Captain Sophie Hollingsworth. If Indiana Jones and Martha Stewart had a baby, it would be Captain Sophie Hollingsworth. All about adventure, food and sustainability, a passion for cooking in the outdoors has always been with her, but was galvanised when she moved to Australia and bought an old land cruiser. Deep in the outback, she discovered the beauty of bringing the kitchen to the outdoors. Sophie's passion... Um, for expeditions off the beaten track have led her to undertake far-flung adventures most were deemed too inhospitable, including everything from descending uncharted rivers in Madagascar, desert transect treks in Namibia, living with indigenous communities in the Republic of Vanuatu conducting ethnographic research, to sailing across the Pacific Ocean. Hollingsworth's work has been featured by the National Geographic and the United Nations. She's a Fulbright scholar, with a background in environmental science and health security from NYU, Harvard Kennedy School and the University of Sydney. Sophie is a fellow of the Explorers Club and the first new Explorer awardee. When not exploring or during a global pandemic, Sophie lives in <laughs> Sydney, Australia, and that's where she is joining us from today. A very warm welcome to you, Sophie. Well, Emma, thank you for having me. It's a delight to talk to you this morning. Thank you so much. So, if you're watching this rather than um, listening to this, that view behind Sophie is real. It's incredible. Just just look at that. The ocean behind her is amazing. Hoping to, to queue up some dolphins um, oh. so that they can make it into the, the scene as well. That would be magical. Yeah. If you could put in a special request for us, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, do my best. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Um, so... Some of those things that Sophie has done, most people would dream of maybe just doing once in a lifetime. And you've already done so many things in such a short time. It's just inspiring and incredible. And um, you must have so many stories and I just want to hear them all, but we don't have all night, but we will hopefully be able to pick out a few um, incredible stories and hear more about your adventure cooking, which is something quite exciting um, for all of us tonight. So um, as a self-professed explorer, um, so what do you think it means to be an explorer now in the 21st century? I mean, you know, most of the gaps are already filled in on the map. So what Absolutely. is there still to explore and discover? So a lot of the time people are telling me that I was born like 200 years too late to be an explorer. Apparently I, I missed the great age of exploration. And I don't know, I kind of disagree. I think, you know, it's true. The tallest peaks have been climbed. The planet has been mapped. The depths of our ocean reached. But even in 2021, the opportunities for exploration are, are kind of endless. You know, we know more about Mars than what lies beneath our oceans. Ecosystems are changing faster than we understand them in the face of climate change. And indigenous cultures are disappearing before their knowledge is shared. So I really think that exploration is really no longer about like planting your nation's flag in an uncharted territory or being the first to summit the world's tallest mountains and all these accomplishments are, you know, iconic. They're now part of this larger fabric of exploration mm -hmm. because I believe at its core, exploration is really curiosity and action, which makes it as relevant today as it was, you know, 200 years ago. 
So for me, exploration is all about increasing our knowledge and understanding of the world we live in and then bringing that knowledge back to our own communities to help build a more sustainable future. Absolutely, definitely. Learning about the world and all the wonders of it. And like you say, looking at how we can make that better for the future. Exactly. Because that's that's a lot of what the early explorers, you know, kind of a bit of their remit was anyway. So, you know. Mm, definitely. Um, now, it seems that you have been to some incredible places. Um, it must be quite hard to try and pick out your favourites from all of those places. But are there any particular ones that stand out for you from the adventures you've yes been yeah no I'm uh I've been really fortunate and worked quite hard to go on um, a number of amazing expeditions all around the world and I think I'll probably give you like three because there's That's specific fine. categories so for the people I would say my favorite place I've ever been was was in Nicaragua this um uh, I guess would be southeast part of the country the southern autonomous region um some, a, a dear friend of mine, his family's there, and the, it's just um, absolutely unparalleled in the genuine friendliness and kindness and warmth of welcoming to the community I've just experienced nowhere else. Um, so that bit of Nicaragua has always holds a, a special place in my heart. But mm. um, I think one of the places I learned the most was actually in the Philippines. Um, so we did um, a special with National Geographic about a year and a half ago, all about ocean plastic pollution challenges and sort of the, the connection between pollution and poverty and, and how those uh, various challenges and opportunities coexist in, in some of the most, um, I guess, not some of, some of the poorest parts of, of Manila. And um, while, you know, some of the, um, the, the, I don't want to say slums, but some of the, the really poor communities in Manila um, wouldn't probably be at the top of someone's favorite place to go. I, it certainly holds a really special place in my heart because I learned so much from those communities and being able to, to capture their story and, and share it, you know, beyond Manila on, on big screens around the world was, was something that, you know, really um, was inspiring, not only for me, but hopefully for the people that were able to watch. And certainly is, um, I suspect, not on most people's, you know, top of their bucket list, but... Um, a fascinating place to be spending time and learning nonetheless mm, and that's so. certainly off the beaten track right definitely oh yeah I mean like a lot of people fly into Manila but I don't think they stick around mm. <laughs> anyway I interrupted sorry you were going to say three places and I oh been- that's right oh uh, then um there's this little ar- um archipelago Tuamotos in the south pacific I mean, there's only specific tides you can sail in at and so it's like this little coral atoll, basically. So you sail in and then there's a, a fairly deep bit in the middle and you're just surrounded by this little um, tropical paradise. And uh, it has to be the most beautiful place I have ever been. There's oh, wow. black pearl diving and um, it's just uh, yeah, unparalleled and it's picturesque beauty. Oh, that just sounds beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when we're locked down and not able to. I was going to say. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's uh, I love these sort of conversations, especially nowadays, because it, it gives us a little mental escape from um, the <laughs> confinement that we're the all reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can dream of faraway places. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, I mean, I guess that kind of um, takes me a little bit onto thinking a bit more about, you mentioned the um, plastic and sustainability marine conservation work that you're doing. Was that through the National Geographic, did you say? 
Um, so yes, I was working for uh, an organization called Global Citizen, and they had a TV show called Activate, where um, there were various social and environmental challenges that were captured because they run various initiatives all around the world, and um, it was a, a documentary series. So I was their environmental consultant at, at the time, and so we were running um, various campaigns all around the world, but particularly in the Philippines on waste and um, poverty reduction, and um, which all then sort of came back full circle to, to ocean plastic pollution because it's um, we were looking at trying to to help stop the flow of plastics into the ocean mm-hmm. a little bit closer to the source. And so that's why we were um, in the Philippines, which is one of the um, top polluting countries around the world. So uh, the environment's always um, held a, a pretty special place in, in my heart and my also educational background. So it was a, a natural fit to be then um, supporting that initiative. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, and the work that has um, been featured by the UN, is that um, a similar stuff or is that something different? Tell us more about your work um, with the UN. On, on the same vein, yep. So I was the youth representative for the Explorers Club to the United Nations and um, then also named the Outstanding Youth Delegate. And basically that involved uh, a range of things, but um, was really, I gave a number of speeches and was part of a number of various sort of um, events to bring awareness, but it was really all about the intersection of exploration and the environment and using all these grand adventures as kind of like this this inspiration and sort of pointing towards these tipping points and really bringing people in on the journey with the exploration, but then weaving in bits of the environment because I think it's really important, you know, you can you can preach at people about the environment all day, but you know, it's it's effective if they're already on board, but often for, for people that are, are on the sidelines or on the fence about it, it's um, probably not going to work just to, um, to keep reinstating the, the same messaging. And so that's what I think is really inspiring about bringing adventure and environmentalism together is that you can often get people excited and, and not be preaching about them and um, weave in those messages about sustainability. Mm. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the work that you did in Vanuatu? Oh, sorry, you cut out there. Was that Royal Geographic? Oh. So um, the work that you did um, when you were living in Vanuatu, could you tell oh, us yep, a little absolutely. bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I was on an Explorers Club flag expedition where we went to the Republic of Vanuatu. Um, it's a group of about 100 islands um, off the coast of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's fairly well known here in Australia, but when I was, I was living in the U S at the time and tried to get my credit card company, like I put a, a, a travel notice on it and it didn't actually come up as a country that you could put a travel <laughs> notice on. Um, so it is, it is pretty remote, um, very remote. And um, outside of the capital, they've got all these various islands. So we were living um, and working on a place called Maiwo Island, which is sort of northwest in the archipelago. And um, we'd been invited there by some of the female chiefs, and we were looking to help document their practices and powers, because um, it's almost like maybe, I guess the best way to equate it is sort of like a a parliament or a senate. Um, And these women did not have the... I guess rights to join the, the their version of parliament um and in spite of having the same practices and powers 
as the male chiefs. And so they were really looking for some outside support to help get that documentation that, yes, they, in fact, beyond their own justification, did have the, um, the guts and the resumes to, to join. And um, so we supported them in documenting all of their various practices and powers. And it was utterly fascinating um, because you're living with this community that has had very, very little um engagement with the outside world while there's starting to be internet and those sort of things they're still very closely guarding um their traditional practices and so it was um absolutely fascinating unfortunately uh, things seem to be there's there's a conversation the the outcome of the work is it, it prompted the conversation mm-hmm. um and i was back <clears throat> excuse me a few years ago and um it was about back probably a year after the expedition and then again two years after the expedition in the capital and even still you know on the radio there was hotly contested about whether these women should be you know elected into their version of parliament and while I'm not so sure at this moment in time if they didn't fact make it in um, I think it was a really really strong step towards helping them have access and um, that representation in, in their system of government and you know, often we've got a long journey in a lot of places, but it um, ignited something that's uh, hopefully making steps towards the better. Mm, yeah, I like that. You know, it like you say, it ignited something. It got something started. It got talking about women's empowerment and kind of getting that more exactly. on the agenda. And I, I think that's kind of the difference between like just adventure and exploration, because I think adventure would be like going to Vanuatu and spending time with this remote community and, you know, doing all of the cool sort of Indiana Jones-esque things, but then the exploration bit is the really sort of the, so what, the why, the kind of what's next. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly a lot of the things that you have done, um, it seems like you are really kind of pushing boundaries, I think, for women and being a fantastic role model um, for women. So am I right in thinking, Sophie, that um, at the time of your certification for becoming a 200-ton captain, um, you were the youngest female to ever obtain a 200-ton yacht master's captain's license. Is that right? Yes. Yep. That, that's right. It's been a fair while now. Um, I was, I mean, I'm still very young, but I was really yeah, young at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So at the time of certification, I was the youngest female to ever obtain a, a 200-ton yacht master uh, MCA captain's license. And um you know, I, I think one of the, the key things there was I, I started really early. You know, I started mm-hmm. working on boats when I was 15 um, at an age that, um, you know, I basically started as a glorified cleaning lady and knew after one day of cleaning the boat's um, heads or the toilets that, like, that is absolutely not what I wanted to be doing. And, and someday I wanted to be a boat's captain and then really worked night and day to make that dream a reality over the next um, four or five years. And I think the the key thing was, was that I never really let my gender prohibit me from doing anything I've ever wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it can sometimes be tricky in male-dominant fields and might have to work um, sometimes harder than, than the boys do. But, you know, with a, with a lot of hard work and, and good humor, I, I typically find that you can, you can crack the code. And, you know, I think it's just really important that in this day and age that we're, we're at the table because we, we have the background to be there not just because of our gender um but i, I think if, if if you want to do something in life it, it shouldn't matter what gender you are and you know if you're willing to work hard and you know laugh at yourself when you fail it it, it shouldn't hold you back 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If you've got a dream, I think you should be able to just go after that. And it seems like that's totally what you did. I love it that you say, you know, you started off cleaning the boats and then you were like, right, I want to be the captain. That's just, yeah, that's brilliant. I started out, um, I remember my first ever job at the age of nine or 10 was picking up horse poop. And I remember being in the field, picking up the horse poop, being like, no, I want to do something more than this. And (laughs) just kind of having that drive from a young age to want to go somewhere. It's great. Yeah. Um, I suppose, um, thinking about your kind of passion for conservation and making a difference um, and changing things for the better, how has that led you into adventure and adventure cooking? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, about two years ago, I was on a Fulbright fellowship here in Australia and uh, doing research on, on water security and health. And I realized, you know, in a pre-COVID world, a lot of the work that I was doing could be done remotely. Mm, what thought. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but unlike in a COVID time, I decided to buy myself an old land cruiser and basically drive across Australia all on unsealed four-wheel drive tracks. And I was out getting to see some of the most remote and spellbinding parts of Australia and, you know, this was going to be basically like a, a six month adventure. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to make sure that I was eating well um, while I was out in the middle of nowhere. And um, typically on adventures, I, I always love good food, but and I love adventures, but they weren't something that was particularly connected. Um, because, you know, you're typically away from running water and refrigeration. And so mm-hmm. they just seemed like they didn't really blend. Um, but what I found when I was out in the fields and basically <laughs> eating these hyperly locally sourced foods um, is that food is most people's closest connection to nature. You know, we often have this sort of normalized disconnection to the food system. Um, and, you know, most humans don't know how their food gets to their plate. Um, mm, I mean, so don't true. get me wrong. I'm, I'm no perfect model. I, I do order Uber Eats um, on, on the regular, but um, I think this time out in Australia and in Western Australia really started opening my eyes to where my food was coming from, how it was getting onto, you know, my campfire or my plate. And I realized that, you know, that's kind of the way to most people's heart is through their stomachs. And so <laughs> yes, that's so I, was, true. <laughs> I was out in all these really cool places and it seemed like a no brainer to me that these places, you know, that we should protect some of these places. And I was like, well, how can I bring elements of this? Why is it that I care about these things when so many other people don't? And I think part of it would come down to the experience of the understanding. And so that is what I started to try and tap into through what I have coined adventure cooking, which is basically cooking in the outdoors over the fire in somewhat creative ways. So how that connects back to conservation was what you were asking me, right? Mm, yeah. Yes. So, so basically um, what I've, I've tried to start doing um, when I initially was, was I posted some photos of me uh, in the outback cooking um, <laughs> Some, some local bacon hung over the fire. And um, well, that sounds delicious. Just, it, it was really good. Um, <laughs> but people went nuts. I, I posted it mainly so that my, my mom and friends and family knew that I was, you know, still alive and, and eating well. And it just kind of started to blow up. People were so excited, you know, everyone from like 
Walmart graders in the South, most of my audience is American, um, on through to like execs in, in New York, it didn't matter your background or where you were in life. Like people just were mesmerized by the fire and mm. by food in these sort of off the sort of norm ways. And I really realized that there was an opportunity there to weave in some messages and a background of like, okay, why on earth was she in the middle of the outback cooking bacon over the fire? Why is this better for the planet than some things? <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and so that's really how it all started um, because, you know, when, when you're in the middle of the outback at a cattle station and, you know, your, your options are a, <laughs> a cow, a half a cow or a can of chickpeas from China that expired five years ago, um, I typically find that it's best to, to go with, with the local options. And so I've started um, really looking into my food system um, wherever I am now and um, just really enjoy and think it's really fun um, in terms of all of the, the opportunities for cooking over the fire. Is the sun a bit too much now? It's beautiful. I think it's fine. It looks okay. bright and beautiful. I mean, you could tilt it a little bit if okay. it's bright for you. Sorry. No, no you're great. Bright. Okay. <laughs> it's lucky you've got sunshine there. We've just got rain and cold, so it's nice to see the sunshine. <laughs> oh, well, it's about to come down. There's a massive squall line out there. So. Okay. <laughs> um, maybe I'll have some rainbows or something going on in the background. Exactly. That would be exactly. nice. <laughs> um, so you were saying that you do a lot of cooking over the fire. Um, what was it that made you kind of decide that that was how you wanted to do your cooking? Well... <sighs> Look, in the Land Cruiser, I had fairly limited space. I mean, a, a lot of space by, by some standards, but, um, you know, we did not have space to carry enough, like, little um, butane propane cans for, like, gas stove cooking. And we were, were camping in the middle of nowhere. And so it was either sort of the, the, that stove option, which we typically saved for high winds, uh, mm-hmm. rain, or <laughs> emergency coffee times. in the mornings before mm-hmm. the fire was lit, Um uh, but so we were really relying on fire for cooking most of our meals and, you know, in the similar vein of not being able to carry enough, you know, gas cans, um, mm. basically we had a, a fairly limited camping kitchen, so to speak. And so often some of these creative ways of cooking things over the fire, like hanging bacon over sticks um, or trussing pineapples and things to, um, to hang over the fire or fish on sticks, smashed pumpkins, all of these things originally sort of emanated from not having a full kitchen in the back of my Land Cruiser. <laughs> so, um, but what initially seems like a constraint, you know, we pumpkins were in season when we were in Alice Springs. And so we bought a bunch of pumpkins to make it, you know, across the Tanami Desert. But, you know, we realized after we started cooking it, that we didn't actually have a knife that was big enough to, to cut into this pumpkin. We had like basically pocket knives that we were using as kitchen knives. And um, once it was a big pumpkin. And so once it came out over the fire, we're like, well, we could pick at it. And I just started thinking, well, what did we have in the kit of the four wheel drive that we could potentially use to, to smash this pumpkin? And I was like, yeah. Like a machete. A shovel. A shovel. Exactly. <laughs> a shovel. So, so we started smashing pumpkins with spade or shovel. And um, that was part of the you know recovery kit for the, the four-wheel drive. And it worked phenomenally well and then became a bit of a thing. Um, I used to do pre-COVID adventure cooking catering for people. And, you know, 
had a bunch of um, trial lawyers that had for a big Halloween party, we, we smashed pumpkins. So. Wow. I mean, that's just ingenious. So, you were being exactly. <laughs> and I mean, the same was true with, with how we started Fish on Sticks. Um, basically, we came across this fish in, in Western Australia that was way too big for the cast iron pan that I had. And I was like, oh, well, we probably could fillet it up. But we wanted to to have as much of, you know, eat as much as the entire fish and not just the fillets. And so I was like, well, why don't we just like tie it on a stick <laughs> and put it over the fire? And lo and behold, that's what we did. And it worked. And it turns out it is now my favorite way to cook fish, even when I have the proper pans. So I think these things all just kind of, you know, when you're, when you're forced to be creative, while initially mm. it can sometimes seem frustrating and be a bit of a challenge that you don't have all the tools you're used to in your kitchen, um, it can be really creative and inspiring and, and make you connect a little bit more with nature than, than you typically would. Mm. Um, so it sounds like you've kind of been able to work around the challenges and find new ways to cook things. Um, are there any other challenges that you find when you're kind of cooking over the fire, when you don't have your regular barbecue or your regular kind of kitchen there that you yeah, learn to work around? I mean, I think the main one is that everything takes longer, right? I mean, in this mm. age of instant gratification, we're, we're used to microwaves, cleaning up yeah. food in a matter of seconds and gas stovetops providing, you know, really quick answers. But with fire, it's simply not the case because, you know, you start the fire, then you have to wait for the wood to burn down to a bed of coals, you know, and that alone typically surpasses the amount of time that most people devote to cooking for like probably two days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that, it gives us time, whether you're in like some remote far from place or even in your own backyard, um, just to, to slow down and be patient and, you know, enjoy the company around you and, you know, have a beer. Like, I think I think there's some some upsides to the fact that it does take longer. I mean, mm. I wouldn't recommend fire cooking on a, a busy work or school night, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a time and a place for it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it gives you that chance to kind of be mindful of what you're exactly. doing and enjoy the company that you're with, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, do you have any pro tips for making your food taste nicer if you're doing this kind of wild fire cooking? How can you make it taste great? Um, so I think at the beginning, a lot of people will try to cook like directly on the flames, which mm -hmm. is kind of a no-no. So you try cooking food on, on more of the glowing coals as opposed to, you know, the big big flames mm -hmm. um you know, I feel like if I, I tried to do it I would totally just make it char grilled and awful and I do exactly what you said I try and stick on <laughs> that's a good tip <laughs> oh hey look I I'm not culinarily trained I in the beginning I was just direct flaming everything and you know, I, think, <laughs> I think it's all it's a journey for everyone right so if, you, mm. if that's how you start if but you're starting I think you know burn that food like it's, it's a step <laughs> in the right direction <laughs> um but good wood also I think is really important. It really mm -hmm. affects the flavor of whatever you're cooking. And so making sure that, you know, you're, you're sourcing something that's um, sustainable, but also probably tasty. So like soft woods will burn a lot faster and hotter, which is not ideal. Um, and you want to make sure that, you know, any wood that you're purchasing um, or cutting down hasn't had any chemical treatment to it. So you wouldn't want to be eating that. Um, mm. Then I guess, you know, eating local your taste buds will, will thank you and it's probably better for the environment but mm. you know mm. yes I ate some delicious um 
Cornish chowder today and it was Ooh, amazing. Uh, it was really, sounds, really good. Mine, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess just in terms of thinking about how we might be able to do this, you said, you know, we could do it out in the remote outback or you could do it in your own backyard. Um, last weekend was Valentine's weekend. Um, yes. And the UK, I don't know if, is it currently the same in Australia, is on a total national lockdown. Are you mm. basically... We're we're pretty lucky at the moment. Um, we actually have a fair few more freedoms than it sounds like you do. Um, but we, we go in and out of lockdown here. Mm. So they have these snap lockdowns. So we're lucky at the moment we can... We can go out. Um, we don't have any sort of restrictions on our movements within the state. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it, it really only takes one case here and they shut everything and then it's down. Locked down again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Currently. So um, it's, it's kind of about every other month it seems like. So at the moment okay. we're enjoying the freedoms, but, um, but I feel your pain because it was only a few months back at Christmas time. Actually, we had a massive lockdown here and, um, you know, a lot of people weren't able to see their families. And so, mm, yeah. Um, so, so we, um, yeah, so we are currently locked down. All the restaurants are closed. People were mm-hmm. suddenly scurrying around at home trying to make a delicious meal for their loved ones. Um, yeah. Would you have any kind of ingenious ideas on how people might be able to come up with a kind of next time around, um, perhaps an unconventional candlelit dinner under the stars to, to woo yes. their loved ones? So I would say start small. I made the mistake once when I was first getting into this. Um, I had a, a date night actually right on this balcony and oh. I tried to do a whole tomahawk steak that I hung over the fire. It was a disaster. <laughs> it, it did not work at all. There was a big rain, like a fluke rainstorm that came in. The outside was charred. The inside was so rare. It fell in the fire at one part point. Like the whole thing was just the antithesis of what you would want in a date night. Mm-hmm. So I have developed <laughs> Did the date better start? ideas. Did you get a second date? Uh, yes, we're, we're still together. I yes. think it is. <laughs> um, a few years down the road. Um, but so along the way, I have figured out some better date night ideas for open mm-hmm. fire cooking. Um, I would say my favorite go-to that's really easy um, is probably seaweed butter scallops or garlic Ooh, butter scallops. Um, so scallops are, you know, blessed with this like shell that you can basically use as its own little frying pan. Mm-hmm. So either get if you can get some scallops that are in the shell or source the scallops and then oftentimes you can, you can just buy scallop shells um create um your own little butter so you're gonna whip in some garlic or whip in some seaweed um or any sort of local fresh herbs that you have around and stick that butter concoction in the seashell itself and then plop the scallop on top of that and then you put that shell <clears throat> directly on the coals Ooh. Or on a grill plate if you're using a grill, and you know, let that simmer until the the butter is sort of boiling, and you're getting that nice sort of golden brown um, exterior crisp on the scallop, and then you know, serve immediately mm. with some sort of um, delicious champagne or white wine, <clears throat> and you can you know eat it directly out of the scallop shell. And I think it's you know, not only is it super easy and fast, but it's kind of different and. Um, inspiring when we're all definitely doors oh and you know (laughs) you can cook I I find I'm quite inclined to to start fires all over the place I have just a pyromaniac 
I mean, that sounds terrible, especially <laughs> living in Australia where we had these terrible fires last year. But um, control fires. But exactly. Mm. I, I do think often, you know, people see a lot of limitations and, you know, but if you have, if you're, if you're safe about it and conscious about, you know, the, the precautions around ensuring that the fire doesn't get out of control, um, you know, you, you can have a fire almost anywhere. Um, I've, I've dug up flower beds in my mom's backyard. Um, I love that. <laughs> Uh, I still hear about it. I would I would ask permission before you do that in the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good idea. Um, but even just like small portable grills, I think mm-hmm. are a really cool way to be able to, you know, either have a little small cookout on your balcony or, you know, take with you on, on a picnic and just having something a little different that allows us to, you know, connect with nature and get outside and spend time with the people we love, which I think is even more important now that we've all had to slow down and be stuck indoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to take those moments when we can to get outdoors. Exactly. Um, oh, just the thought of those garlic butter scallops is making my tummy rumble. <laughs> I would be totally wooed. If anybody did that for me, I'd be butter in their arms or whatever the expression is. <laughs> um, so um, I guess... I, well, all I can think about is food now and wanting to go and have a midnight feast. (laughs) Um, But I suppose some of the main kind of things that we've taken away from, um, well, that I've taken away from tonight is, well, there's just so much. I think being able to take opportunities when and where we can to kind of get out to appreciate what is where we are, whether that's Mm -hmm. um, just locally where we're living or when we're out and about discovering someone new, just um, being able to embrace what the local food or the local people and the local cultures have to offer because there is so much um, that Mm. they have to offer. Um, Do you have any kind of last messages that you would want to pass on to our audience or any kind of thoughts that we can kind of take away um, from this? Well, I think touching on that local bit is is key, especially now because, you know, we, we can't travel, we can't leave our own sort of backyards and so but finding the things in your own backyard is is key I mean I I'd lived here for a couple years and only just started to realize that there's sea urchins just below me in the waters right there and we've started going down and and free diving for them and you know then eating them and Mm. you know don't get me wrong like an afternoon free diving for sea urchins is no massive expedition to Namibia but it is a sort of micro adventure that I probably never would have discovered if it hadn't been for this you know, pandemic. And so I think there is, this presents us all with a, a massive opportunity to, to find out a bit more about our own backyards and, you know, embrace those, those smaller adventures for the time being. Absolutely. Definitely. Until we can get out and see more of the world. And yeah, there is a lot on our doorstep that we might be missing. Exactly. Mm, absolutely lovely well thank you so much Sophie for joining us oh thank you Dr Emma it's such a pleasure (laughs) it's been an absolute delight to speak to you and I as I said I feel like there's so much more that we could go into to hear about the incredible experiences that you've had but we'll have to save that for another day um thank you so much and it looks like you've got well the storm hasn't arrived yet so hopefully you've got a lovely day ahead of you 
Well, thank you. You, too. you have a good night. Yeah, thanks, so thank you so much. And um, we will sign off now. And thank you everyone, very much, everybody, for listening. I hope you have a nice day or evening, wherever you are. And um, join us again soon on World Extreme Medicine Podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks.